1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Judy Wu and Gwendolyn Mink, author of the book, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Mink, first woman of color in Congress. How are you both doing today?
2: Good. Pretty good.
0: I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourselves and how you became interested in this project.
2: Um, well, I think Judy will probably have a more interesting uh, response. This is uh, Wendy Gwendolyn Mink speaking. Um, I am the daughter of uh, Patsy Mink. And so in a way, I was sort of born with the project uh, in, in not, not necessarily in mind, but in my basket, my life experience basket. Um, I am trained as a political scientist. I do political history, policy history, um, mostly about gender and uh, inequality and poverty and and stuff like that. Um, So as as a matter of affinity and training, I am positioned to do this kind of work about my mother. And of course, because she was my mother, um, it was sort of, uh, it seemed imperative to tell her story.
1: Um, My name is Judy Wu. I'm a professor of history and Asian American studies at University of California Irvine. I began this project 10 years ago, which seems like a long time now. Um, I discovered Patsy Mink's papers on the Library of Congress website. And I realize now that it's probably because it was the 40th anniversary of Title IX and they wanted to bring attention to her career, her achievements. Um, She was someone that I had always heard about, and I was actually surprised that no one else had done in-depth research about her. She really seemed like a forgotten figure in Asian American studies, women's history, modern U.S. history, the popular imagination. I met Wendy pretty soon into the process of doing research, and I really enjoyed being able to go to the Library of Congress to to look through archives and then go down the street and have dinner with her and ask her, what was her life like? What was her family like? Um, What was her mother like? It was wonderful to have that opportunity to talk to each other and learn from her. And then when I heard that Patsy Mink wanted Wendy to be the author of her biography, I thought it was really important for us to collaborate. Um, So it's been a wonderful 10 year
0: journey. You gave us information about Patsy's grandparents and their migration story. What can you tell the readers about her mother's migration story and her push out of Japan?
1: There's a significant uh, migration stream from Japan to Hawaii as well as to the continental United States in the late 19th century. There was both both push and pull. So on the pull part um, in the what becomes the United States, there's enormous efforts to actually develop the land after taking possession of land from Indigenous peoples. In Hawaii, in particular, uh, the establishment of a plantation society, a plantation system that demanded labor that could perform really backbreaking forms of work for long periods of, uh, of time and um, throughout, the, throughout the work week. Um, and at the same time that there was this demand for workers, Japan was undergoing a modernization process. Um, And that modernization process was to increase taxes, um, build a military, reform society, but that exacted a lot of economic demands on people who had been farmers, who were just trying to make a living and get ahead. And so it resulted in this pattern of Japanese families ascending members of their, of their kin abroad to earn money, hopefully send some back to help support them. Um, and I think for many of them, they were anticipating perhaps returning as well to Japan. Um, so I think Patsy Mink's grandparents were part of that, that generation. They came as plantation workers, again, finding it very, very difficult on um, the type of work that they were engaged in um, and um, two of her grandparents decided they were going to escape together, one from the working conditions and one because of a very abusive relationship. Um, and they hid in the outskirts of Maui for, for, long, for long decades, had a, a significant family before even they were able to, to marry because of the grandmother's first, first marriage. Um, Something I find really interesting in Patsy being is that aside from this really beautiful story of of hardship but also resilience, she was third generation. So, a lot of people in in her time period, she was born in the 1920s, many of them were second generation, but her grandparents were the ones who immigrated. So, um, she had three um, three generations to become part of the society in Hawaii.
0: Congresswoman Patsy Mink went to an all-white school where no plantation camp children attended. Tell us about the significance of this experience to her life.
2: Um, this was for elementary school. Um, it was uh, undoubtedly an important sort of formative consciousness raising experience and the long arc of consciousness raising that was her childhood. She grew up in Uh, a highly stratified uh, racially and uh, class stratified plantation society, as Judy has talked about. Um, And so she was aware of sort of arbitrary distinctions imposed on uh, groupings of people. She was aware of exclusions and inequality. She was certainly aware of hardship and the like. But I think that the elementary school experience was the first time that She was the direct recipient of discriminatory um, marginalizing uh, behavior that made her feel invisible and other and less than. Uh, The teachers gave scant attention to her and her brother. Her brother also was was in the school and uh, she was very aware of being both uh, apart from the student body in the school, but also apart from her own community by being in the school that she was in and not in the schools that her cousins and, and so forth happened to um, happened to also attend. Um, you know, this there were a, a series of cascading episodes in the 1930s and, and 40s that culminate with the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II that you know attuned her consciousness over time and helped her to sort of make sense of the kinds of things that she experienced as a four-year-old um but also invigorated her um her sense of uh, mission with respect to challenging inequalities wherever she encountered them
1: well what's really striking to me about the school that she went to it was segregated by language so I- it was called a standard English school. And for the racialized children from the plantation, they had to pass a test so that they can demonstrate that they could speak English like Howleys. Um, but the white students were not necessarily asked to perform that. And um, as her cousin commented, the common language among plantation folks was pidgin. It was a, a, a cruelization of multiple languages um, so it was interesting to me that it was language that was used predominantly to racially segregate the children.
0: College and Congresswoman Patsy Meek, what were some of her battles that she had to fight at college?
2: Um, well, some of the battles that she fought were, were battles of advocacy, where she um, you know, uh, took on the, the mantle of student activism, uh, arguing for a, constitutional, uh, a territorial constitutional uh, convention to promote the idea of statehood for Hawaii, for example. Um, she also participated in um, uh, a lot of student debate and sort of in those uh, venues started to sort of uh, sharpen her ideas and argumentation with respect to, Uh, social justice and public policy and things like that. Um, She was also embattled in the sense that she found herself in some circumstances fighting against uh, discriminatory structures and practices. Um, Not so much at the University of Hawaii where she attended for her first two years, but on the mainland where she went during her junior year uh, to study first at uh, Wilton College and then at the University of Nebraska. Um, The the sort of probably most striking story from that experience happened at the University of Nebraska, um, where she found herself excluded from ordinary dormitory life, as well as from sororities, as well as from other aspects of the sort of social management of of the campus. She was told that because she was not white, she had to go and live in international house with all of the other students of color and She led an uprising by students of color at the University of Nebraska, challenging the discriminatory housing policy, the exclusionary uh, housing policy. And uh, ultimately it provoked change at that university. So I think she got a sense of of how advocacy and movements and collective action um, can make a difference. You know, maybe not overnight, but it certainly can make a difference. Um, if you if you struggle um, for the for the duration.
0: What happened to Congresswoman Meek and her medical school dreams?
1: Well, thank you for that question. I just wanted to add something else about um, Patsy Meek's experience in college, especially on the continent of the United States. Wherever she went, they wanted to treat her like an international student, even though she had, was born and grew up in the territory of the United States. So again, I thought that was very interesting that in this case, nationality or presumed foreignness is the way that she becomes racialized. Um, Patsy Mink from a very young age wanted to become a doctor and that's what she set her sight on. She majored in two science fields she was a good student, she was a student advocate, um, but when she was applying, it was shortly after the end of World War II. And there, were go- well, there was government assistance, the GI Bill, that supported returning veterans to enable them to return back to school and also to purchase low mortgage, low mortgage hom- homes. Um, and it was something that the country felt was owed to those who were willing to sacrifice their lives. Um, But the fact that she was applying to medical school at the same time, that there were all these returning veterans, really pushed her out of that um, that educational, um, those educational opportunities. Similar perhaps to the ways in which women during the World War II were in need, these Rosie the Riveters, they were needed for the defense industry. But once the men came back, these jobs were seen as rightfully theirs as opposed to the women's. And it was a really crushing experience for her to get rejection after rejection. Um, And at the time, medical schools had very few women. On average, around that time period, maybe four to 5% were women. Um, So she definitely faced an uphill battle. And then to do it at that particular historical moment brought even more challenges.
0: Now, she went back to Hawaii from Chicago. What were some of her first political involvements? Yeah, um, so After not being able to finish medicals or
1: not being able to enter medical school, she decided to enter law school. And again, she was regarded as international student, Um, but in this case it benefited her because there were slots at the University of Chicago for her to be able to enter. But she never really found a position that was commensurate with her skills, her training, her ambitions. Um, She could not get a law job in Chicago And even coming back to Hawaii, it was very difficult. The the law firms, the big law firms tend to hire Howie male lawyers. Um, Maybe some of the smaller law firms would hire Asian American men. But um, as an Asian American woman, she really struggled. And so she hung a shingle, did a private practice, um, kind of engaged in barter and trade in terms of her legal skills. Um, And I think those experiences of of exclusion, of marginalization, really propelled her to become um, involved in politics. So in that time period after World War II, the have-nots, the people who had been at the bottom of the plantation society, had come back from the war, having greater expectations of being able to reclaim citizenship, reclaim their rights as citizens. And Hawaii engineered what happened in Hawaii was considered a democratic revolution in which those who had previously been excluded now were demanding a seat at the table. And um, she was interested in participating in those, in those struggles. Um, she often worked as a behind the scenes organizer and she became deeply involved with the young Democrats of America, which um, actually doesn't seem that young <laughs> right now to me, but they were people who were about under under the age of 40. And through that set of organizing, she was being connected with these people who were trying to change the dynamics of the party, both within Hawaii, but also nationally. Hawaii
0: Democrat. Did she face opposition because she was a pioneering woman?
1: Absolutely. So her, her labor, her contributions were welcome as long as they were behind the scenes organizing, if she was campaigning for, for male candidates. But when she wanted to go out and become a candidate, there were um, kind of reluctance to uh, support her campaigns. There were questions about whether she was too independent, not not listening to the party structure. Um, So I think some of her most um, difficult losses occurred because of that combination of racial and gender exclusion.
0: 1956 campaign. What happened?
2: Uh, That was her first um, electoral uh, initiative. Uh, She decides in 1956 that she can be a candidate too after having spent several years working for other candidates in the um, burgeoning uh, Democratic Party. So um, that was where she sort of got her feet wet uh, in politics and uh, ultimately was extremely successful. She ran a successful campaign. Some people in political science, my nominal field, have argued that uh, women candidates seem to be able to get their foot in the door when they are running uh, in sort of at-large or uh, slate-wide elections where there are multiple candidates for a a single district, uh, multiple candidates to be chosen for a single district. Um, And she may have been benefited in in that regard. In any case, she led the ticket for the, I think it was the 10th House of Representatives district on the island uh, of Oahu um, and thus was poised to enter the um, territorial legislature in January of 1957. Um, Yeah.
0: 1960, Democratic National Convention. Tell us about it.
1: Now, I think there are two aspects that were really striking to me. First of that, she spoke on behalf of the civil rights plank. Uh, the Democratic Party um, had been regionally divided in terms of these issues with the South threatening to boycott, secede. Um, and she made a very impassioned speech about why it was so important to pass and advocate for civil rights. So I think that's one aspect. But the second aspect I find really interesting is the media coverage. Um, I remember finding this journalist describing her as an Oriental doll of a delegate. Like even um, when she is being um, given the platform to speak and to be passionate and to advocate for serious issues, there was a tendency to want to dismiss her because of of her being an Asian American woman. Congressman woman
0: Minks first vote January fourth, nineteen sixty five. Tell us about the significance to racism.
2: Um, Well, it was um, a vote on the seating of the Mississippi congressional delegation in the House of Representatives. Um, In the, as you know, the civil rights movement had been um, waging profound struggles over the course of the early 1960s and especially uh, intensifying in 1964 uh, uh, to secure voting rights and, and full democratic participation, and that had included the formation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, led by Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, which challenged the National Democratic Party at its presidential nominating convention in August of 1964. Uh, It had challenged the National Democratic Party with respect to the delegates from the state of Mississippi because it was an all-white delegation elected in an all-white Primary system, the National Democratic Party had been unwilling to unseat the elected delegates, but promised work on voting rights to the MFDP and other voting rights activists in the following uh, uh, congressional session. So, uh, the following congressional session begins on January fourth, nineteen sixty-five, and and the The spirit of the challenge in 1964 comes to a head with a renewed challenge to the seating of the Mississippi delegation, this time in the Congress of the United States, not just at the Democratic National Convention, but as full-fledged members of the House of Representatives, because the Mississippi delegation once again was elected through an all-white political process in which Blacks were excluded from participating in the various uh, ways in which voting rights were restricted. Um, My mother's first vote was on whether or not to seat the delegates from, or the representatives from Mississippi. And she voted with the civil rights community and against the seating of the Mississippi delegation. And in that moment, it was a profoundly exhilarating moment of statement of uh, alliance of, advocacy for voting rights and equality for um, all of the people who had been marginalized by the democratic process thus far.
0: Wendy, can you tell us about what you saw your mother experience through the eyes of a 12 or 13-year-old?
2: Well, 12 and a half was how old I was when we first arrived in Washington in uh, December of 1964. Um, which was about a month before she took office in January of 1965. And there were were many different sort of valences or or layers of things that I observed, some of which took on greater or lesser um, significance depending on the moment. Overwhelmingly, what I saw was her diving immediately into uh, questions of the civil rights struggle on, on the one hand, which obviously uh, culminated in the first instance with the challenge to the Mississippi delegation. And also, uh, uh, I saw her dive deeply into questions of war and peace with respect to uh, deciding not to support Lyndon Johnson's uh, expansion of the war in Vietnam. So those were those are the two, in terms of like political, uh, moments and experiences that registered most profoundly, it was sort of watching her navigate those shoals that um, stand out for me the most in, as a 12 and 13 year old observer, uh, semi-participant, at least in the family of a person who's having to make hard choices. Uh, Beyond that, I also witness all kinds of things like the media, you know, treating her like an exotic um uh, item not really a person just an exotic item from hawaii i saw her having to transform her wardrobe um, i saw her having to figure out who could be trusted who couldn't be trusted in terms of making um uh or forging political alliances both in the legislative branch and uh, in the community at large, so there there was lots to take in um, as a as a preteen person, um, and of course all of those things became much more important and indelible as I aged, which obviously I did over the course of the 1960s as the politics of the era intensified and some of the stakes of decision making became ever more uh, intense and and significant.
0: When do you experience Washington D.C. in the sixties? Tell us about the rebellion among the teenagers in that part of the country.
2: Um, I don't know how much rebellion there was, uh, percentage-wise, in the teenage community, uh, but there were certainly pockets of uh, political activism among teenagers, high school uh, activism, especially around the war in Vietnam um activism that sort of looked to associating with the college students and the student movement that they initiated and drove to challenge authority and uh, question establishment roles and thinking and so forth so um i'd say it was a it was a period of of um fairly Intense pockets of political activism. And then, you know, sort of the usual cultural displays of dissatisfaction with the mores of the parental generation, whether it be through smoking or experimentation with uh, marijuana or uh, sort of dressing in ways that would, you know, upset parents and, and things like that.
0: April 19, 1971 the speech given at the first national conference on Asian American studies. Why was this very significant?
1: Well, I think first of all, it's significant that there's a whole field in Asian American studies that was being formed at that time period. The category Asian American was invented in many ways in the late 1960s, as people of different Asian ethnicities came together and formed a pan-ethnic identity. It's not necessarily a natural political formation because people from China may have very antagonistic people uh, feelings against people who are from Japan, um, Korea, and so on because of Japanese colonialism in Asia. Um, but what brought them together was this recognition that they were treated as a racialized other in the United States. And also that there's a global um, um, global campaign that really was encapsulated in the war in Vietnam in which people of Asian ancestry were racialized and treated as the other. Um, And those were some of the themes that Patsy Mink spoke about at the conference. She was opposed to the Vietnam War for various reasons, but one of them has to do with race, that the way that the war was fought was to treat people of Asian backgrounds as if they're not completely human, that it was justifiable to engage in this level of violence. Um, some things that I find really remarkable about the Vietnam War is that if you take all the bombs that were dropped during World War II, and you triple that, that's how much was dropped on Vietnam, and twice as many of the bombs were dropped on South Vietnam, which is a U.S. ally. Troops, American troops who fought in the war talked about how it was hard for them to distinguish between the enemy versus their friends. Um, and even the ways in which the war was measured, it was measured in terms of body counts, how many people um, had been, would, were killed as a measure of war. And so her speech was really trying to point out this type of mentality that the war um, was built upon and that the war in turn fueled. So I think those ideas are important and the fact that she's doing this in a, in a context in which activists are trying to form an intellectual field, you see the ways in which he's building relationships with political movements and, and also intellectual movements.
0: Oregon and the candidate for president. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I love this story because um, when Hillary Clinton was running for the presidency um, twice, <laughs> um, there were all these memories about Shirley Chisholm running for office and her campaign was really remarkable as well. But Patsy Mink ran actually the same year as Shirley Chisholm and they were political allies. So they agreed not to compete directly with each other. The reason why Patsy Mink ran is that there were anti-war activists in Oregon and they wanted her to be a spokesperson to represent um, anti-war views in a substantive manner. And I just think about the gumption it takes to decide that you're gonna run for the presidency of the United States um, and to imagine that that's possible So she campaigned very hard up and down um, different parts of the state. And unfortunately, the results were not what she hoped for. Um, But I think that says something about her overall career, that she was willing to take on political challenges, even if they seemed out of reach, even if it didn't seem like it might be possible, Um, but she was going to give it her best and um, see what might be possible as a result of her efforts.
0: Do you think that as a result of uh... Patsy Meek being a mother and watching her daughter being denied opportunities helped push her for Title IX?
2: Um, I certainly think that uh, tracking the ways in which gender was used to either limit me or uh, track me or exclude me over the course of my educational career up to the Point of passage of Title IX, I think that clearly fed my mother's sense of the urgency for creating policies that would support change. Um, I remember as early as nursery school, my parents being very upset with the uh, gender socialization that was taking place in the classroom, with girls being told to go play housewife while boys were encouraged to experiment with uh, mechanical items and uh, uh, you know, build things and uh, you know, chase their imaginations and so forth. Um, I remember in second grade how livid my mother was when I was told that I shouldn't stand for president of my second grade classroom because a boy wanted to be president and it would be more appropriate for me to serve as his vice president as his helper. Uh, uh, in the in the scheme of things. Um, and then of course, as Title IX enactment approaches, um, I also received a letter much like the letter she received from medical schools. I received a letter from a college I applied to in 1970 telling me, uh, sorry, but we can't let you in, not because you're not qualified, but because only 40% of our entering class can be female, which meant effectively there was a quota system in place, So all of those things that happened to me along the way were reminders of the things that happened to her along the way, and were lessons that, you know, without some kind of human intervention, uh, patriarchy, discrimination, inequality was simply going to be recapitulated from generation to generation. So in that sense, yes, I, I think that the Um, sort of the personal window onto a political problem in this case um, definitely influenced uh, her passion, uh, fueled her passion.
0: 1976, Senate run. what did you find out there?
1: I thought that was really fascinating. So Patsy Mink had served in the House of Representatives for 12 years. She wanted to pursue a different office that would, would give her more time When you're in the House of Representatives because it's a two-year term, you're basically always running for office. And she was so far away from her constituents. Um, It's really striking, right, for her to be able to do a weekend visit, how long it takes to fly from Washington, DC, land in Hawaii, and then turn around and go back to DC. That year, a number of women ran for the Senate. It was the bicentennial year of the United States, Um, right? It's 200th anniversary. And strikingly, all the women lost which I think says something about the status of gender during that time period. Um, but one of the uh, points that, um, that Patsy made and other um, female candidates pointed out is that there's sort of a tendency to think that women are not viable candidates. Um, and then in turn, it's harder for them to raise money to run for the campaign. So it becomes this cycle in which this assumption of being not viable becomes reinforced because people don't wanna support female candidates. And um, it was it was striking to me that when I was comparing Patsy Mink's campaign strategy um, and Spark Matsunaga's campaign strategy, he was able to raise much more funding. Um, he could charge more for fundraisers. His political base was in kind of the Honolulu area, so it was more the financial capital. Patsy' base was more the outskirts, the rural towns. Um, her constituents were not as wealthy, so she couldn't charge as much. So you can definitely see how the financing aspect of these political campaigns generated certain types of results.
0: President Carter appointed Patsy Meat Assistant Secretary of State. What did you find out there?
1: Well, first of all, I think that the feminist lobby were not gonna give up. <laughs> so even if some of their candidates lost, they were gonna make sure that the president appointed um, feminist advocates to positions of leadership. Um, so they put a lot of pressure on his office to do so, and in fact some people argue that she could have been in a better um, better role just given her, her track record, um, given her experience on particular issues. So um, the role that she eventually ended up in um, focused on oceans, international scientific and t- technological exchange, and that did connect with um, uh, many of her, her passions and commitments about environmental justice. Um, but Being a legislator is very different from being in the State Department. It's a big bureaucracy. She's serving the president um, as opposed to being a legislator where she has much more direct contact with constituents. She has much more um, ability to identify issues that need to be addressed, um, develop policy. So she felt um, really hamstrung by being in that role and really in this kind of bureaucratic morass I remember doing research um, on on her role and just being a little bit overwhelmed by the number of alphabets, <laughs> um, abbreviations I had to learn about the various offices and their relationships to one another. Um, but that was really striking to me that she had this opportunity, but was very hamstrung
0: in that opportunity. March 5th, 1976, the University of Chicago, they sent her a letter about a medical experiment. Can you tell us how this devastating news impacted her, Wendy.
2: Well, devastating is the is the exactly correct word. Um, the experiment was um, with the, the drug uh, diethylstilbestrol DES. Um, so the head of the OBGYN uh, department at the University of Chicago Medical School um, suspected that DES was not effective in um, preventing miscarriage, which it was allegedly um, successful at doing, which is why it was subscri- uh, prescribed to a lot of women. And so he conducted a double blind study um, without consulting or, or informing or securing consent from any of the patients um, of DES by administering it to them uh, throughout their pregnancy. So this letter that she received was 24 years after her pregnancy it was the pregnancy um, at issue was the pregnancy that produced me um, so she you know she felt devastated by the news that she could have transmitted problems to me because DES is known to cause um, various pretty serious repercussions in uh, the progeny of women who, who took it during pregnancy um, but she also felt powerless because she was a guinea pig in an experiment she didn't even know she was in. Um, and she felt enraged that women's bodies were used in this way or abused in, in this way uh, during her pregnancy. And she felt completely sort of paralyzed by fear for my future because uh, a big question mark was the long-term effects of DES, not just what happened to materialize it moment she received the letter. Um, so it was it, it, it took a, a big toll on her psyche, it um, uh, created new avenues of activism and uh, focus for her advocacy, women's health, um, uh, toxic um, uh, uh, torts and, and the like became sort of very much front of mind as she was thinking of, of policies uh, going forward from that. Um, so it was a intensely and intimately personal uh, bit of news that had a lot of ramifications for how she saw the world and how she saw the treatment of women in it.
0: 1980, she left Washington and moved back to Hawaii. Tell us about her political involvement there.
1: In some ways this was one of my favorite periods to research and write because um, Patsy Ming was the first woman in Congress and her congressional career is important and um, she fought many battles that needed to be fought. Um, but I love the fact that when she comes back to Hawaii and um, she discovers um, and a kind of trash burning plant is being built in her neighborhood, that she just became involved with her neighbors and decided that something needed to be done, um, that they needed to approach um, city council to raise their concerns. And because of that process, she decided to run for city council and she eventually became the the chair, um, the president. Um, I just love this period in her life because it really shows who she is politically and who she is as a person, that politics in many ways was in her blood that she wanted to create change and advocate for what she thought was just. And it didn't really matter whether it was in Hawaii in city council um, versus in in,
0: um, the Capitol. Age 62, one more campaign, congressional seat was open. Tell us about her winning the seat and how much things had changed in Congress.
2: Well, it was um, all a fairly sudden decision. Um, The seat opened up suddenly. And so the decision to run was correspondingly uh, sudden. All of this happened in in the spring of uh, 1990 with the election to complete the term of the vacated seat um, held in September, as well as the election to fill the seat ensuing a new term in Congress uh, also held in September and then in the general in in November. So um, the fact that the seat was open, that it was her old seat that she had inhabited for uh, 12 years during her first tour of service in Congress um, all sort of um, inspired her to stake a a claim to becoming a representative again. There are of course, all kinds of um, Issues that were top of mind for her that she had been working on nationally throughout the 1980s, whether it was fair pay for women, or proper enforcement of Title IX, or you know bilingual equity for school kids, or affirmative action, uh, and the uh, a- application of Title VII in ways that would advance equality. All of those things were. Um, things that she continued to work on, though from the margins clearly when she was no longer in Congress. Um, also, um, we had at the point of the election season in 1990, the, the clear sort of potential buildup to war uh, in the Persian Gulf. And so her sort of politics of peace um, was also part of uh, what called to her to, to run as a voice as an advocate for um, not engaging in uh, military violence in order to accomplish American objectives um, in the Persian Gulf. So she won that election and returned to Congress in September of 1990 um, to a very different Congress than the one that she had left. It was was a Congress that was very much framed by or vice-gripped by almost Uh, the Reagan revolution. Um, The attitudes even of Democrats was that they had to think smaller. They had to take smaller steps to uh, towards their policy objectives uh, and the like. It was very much sort of in the throes of the uh, neoliberal juggernaut. Um, So it was not the kind of uh, institutional life that uh, not similar to the institutional life that she left in, in 1975 or 76, where there was still hope that legislative action could in fact take large strides and make a big difference to improve the lot of the uh, least advantaged in our society. But nevertheless, she always saw um, sort of the world as it was as a challenge to, uh, to act to make it better, whether making it better meant smaller steps Uh, It was something that she would have to to work herself through, but uh, she very much enjoyed the return and uh, certainly spent the next decade um, fighting the good fights that she had uh, uh, been part of in the 65 to 77 period.
0: 1992, third wave of feminism, the year of the woman. What happened there?
1: Um, I think that that naming of the third wave was very much in reaction to the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas. Um, the ways in which Anita Hill was treated um, both in the Senate and also in the media for her um, accusations of sexual harassment. That that whole um, debacle and um, the really difficult experiences that she experienced and other women who experienced sexual harassment relive because of, of that televised set of events, um, they came together and decided that they really wanted to foreground intersectionality in thinking about women's justice. So not to think about women as a white category only, to not think about blackness as a male category only, but to really center the um, experiences of women of color and other women who have intersecting identities that needed to be addressed politically. Um, but I, because of these events, there was a wave of women who decided they're going to run for political office, that they were going to take power into their, into their own hands. And, um, this is something that I think Patsy Mink was very much in the midst of. She was, she had concerns already about Clarence Thomas before these allegations appeared, because he was someone who had a track record of opposing affirmative action, not, not enforcing, Civil rights policies, um, not enforcing gender equity policies, and then when this allocation came forward, just the um, the depth of of patriarchy and, and racism that appeared really fueled her and other women
0: to be to renew their political activism. Would you like to add anything else, Wendy?
2: I no, I think Judy covered it pretty thoroughly there.
0: Women's Health and Equity Act. Tell us about that.
1: I think there's two aspects that I find really interesting. First, that the act was introduced as a set of bills that that were developed by the Congressional Caucus on Women's Issues. Um, And this organization was emerging just as Patsy Mink left office in the late 70s. And then when she came back, she rejoined. So now here's a whole network of mostly women, but also men, who are really thinking about how they can collaborate together, sometimes across party lines to foreground women's concerns. And that type of coalition doesn't really exist right now, it seems, right? There's very polarized positions between the Democrats and the Republicans. And it's not that this um, coalition was necessarily seamless, there were definitely conflicts and debates, but this was a space in which they can come together and develop policies like the Women's Health Equity Act Um, The second aspect I think is very important, which is that Patsy Mink, I think, was someone who's really trying to think how do laws um, apply to different people differently? (laughs) Um, And this act is trying to point out how the scientific community tends to assume men as the universal medical subject. And so you need to actually develop um, experiments, you need to develop um, research Um, There needs to be funding so that women's health concerns, women of diverse backgrounds, racial categories, their concerns are actually centered in terms of how um, treatment is developed, um, prevention programs and so on. Um, And so this is the legislation that's trying to provide um, public attention to these issues and very importantly resources for those issues.
0: Tell us why Congresswoman Meek was not
2: in favor of welfare reform. Um, She was not in favor of welfare reform as it was legislatively designed by uh, the conservative Democrats and Republicans. Um, There were certainly almost anybody on the progressive end of the spectrum could agree that there were things that could be reformed about welfare, um, but not the way the Clinton administration and the Gingrich Republicans uh, had in mind. Um, When we're talking about welfare in this sense, primarily we're talking about the Aid to Families with Dependent Children program, um, which had taken on um, uh, barrels and barrels of of, um, sort of garbage discourse over the course of of 25 years um, that was highly racialized and highly uh, punitive in its uh, import for Uh, poor families who were participating in the program. The uh, reason she opposed welfare reform as it was presented legislatively in the Clinton bill and then in the Republican bill was because it was punitive. It was discriminatory uh, against mothers who were receiving welfare. That is discriminatory against their full and equal citizenship, uh, undermining their rights to reproductive liberty, for example, to personal safety, um, to vocational liberty, even, uh, with work requirements and things of that sort. Uh, She wanted to see a system elaborated that would uh, be an actual safety net for people in times of need, and that would also provide a floor for people who were working for wages in an economy that did not pay a living wage to families um, with children. Um, And so for those sorts of reasons, she opposed the Clinton bill and was one of the legislative leaders uh, throughout the 90s and really until her death uh, of an alternative perspective on social provision for low-income people that focused on uh, sort of honoring the individual autonomy of individuals to to make decisions about their intimate lives and to make decisions about how best to care for their children while providing an economic foundation for people to actually exercise those choices.
0: What was Congressman Mink's solution to poverty?
2: Well, in the context of um, welfare reform or in the context of Welfare provision, which was a program that was targeted to uh, very poor mothers and their children, right? So it's a it's a, a confined population that we're talking about. In in that instance, her idea her idea revolved around sort of creating a network of um, reliable uh, social policy provisions that would um, support a family. For example, uh, health care, access to food and nutrition, um, access to skills training and things like that. Um, She, you know, for not only but for not only for that community, but also for the for the population of people who were in precarious economic straits overall, she thought things like an improved minimum wage, a higher minimum wage, a living wage um, was essential. She thought education was essential. She thought that valuing the caregiving work that individual family members perform for one another uh, with an economic remuneration was also uh, imperative because, because otherwise women were being expected to pay to, to perform two jobs, one for very low pay and the other for no pay at all. Um, so it was a it was a vision of, of poverty assistance that knitted together ideas about gender equality and gender um, autonomy, really self-sovereignty really is the is is more appropriate term. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of a baseline of economic support to make uh, subsistence possible.
0: A war against poor women is a war against all women. Tell us about that quote.
2: Uh, that was a slogan that was um, adopted by, uh feminist social justice scholar activists primarily in the 1990s as a way of trying to appeal to women in general and white feminists uh, in particular to sort of activate their interest in poverty issues affecting women and to activate their support for a more capacious uh, income policy to assist uh, poor families with with children. Um, it was a it was a rhetorical device, attempting to um, show women that everyone is sort of at the precipice of poverty um, if all of the sort of um, uh, elements of your life start to fall apart. Right? If you lose your your high paying job, or you lose your high paid highly paid spouse, or uh, you know your business goes into bankruptcy, uh, your child gets very sick, everybody uh, is economically vulnerable. And to um, sort of, uh, to carve out a policy that takes direct aim at women is a, is a war against women, um, even though in the most immediate terms, it only affects one particular population, that is the population who at the moment is impoverished.
0: 2002, Labor Day weekend. Your mother was hospitalized and later passed on September 28th. Tell us that story.
2: Uh, Well, it was a sudden illness. It was chickenpox that turned into chickenpox pneumonia, um, and uh, chickenpox pneumonia took her life away. Um, It was three weeks of of uh, excruciating um, waiting and hoping um, that ultimately uh, ended in her passing away. Her
0: husband, John, was a supporter of her throughout her entire career. He even visited the grave every day. What did you find about that? I
1: thought that was one of the most moving stories that I had heard. I knew they were a close family and Wendy tells wonderful stories of them, um, you know, having dinner together, talking about politics together. That her father um, took such care of of Patsy that he would even read hate mail um, to spare her that kind of mental and emotional energy. <clears throat> so to think about you know true companionship, to have this um, many decades long marriage in which they're true partners, it was just so moving to hear that. He missed her, and he wanted to talk to her every day.
0: What do you want the reader to leave with once they finish this fascinating book?
1: I think, first of all, I think people should remember Patsy Pink. And that seemed like a very simple thing, but uh, there's a tendency to gloss over her. Um, There was recently the Mrs. America Hulu series in which she's not even a side character. She's not a character, Um, but she was really centrally involved in all those of feminist um, legislative political debates in the 60s and 70s. So I think remembering her is very important. I think also her life really exemplifies um, the need to politically advocate. Um, during the 60s, there were more radical movements that emerged at that time period. And some people were dismissive of Patsy Ming being in Congress, um, you know, that it's a sold out process, it's um, mainstreaming. Um, but she really fought the good fight, and she was doing it in conversation with movement activists. She was trying to experiment, um, be innovative in the type of legislation she was creating. And she was doing this throughout most of her life, um, right? When she's away from Congress, when she comes back to Congress. And that's really one of the, the last messages that she gave us as well, during the 30th anniversary of Title IX, when she talked about the impact of the legislation. She was enormously proud of what it achieved, but she also recognized that there were many efforts to overturn the um, the promise of Title IX, and so she she asked all of us to be vigilant that we need to be um, to take our citizenship rights seriously, that we need to be politically involved um, and really shape our future. Um, I think maybe the last thing is that it's um, important to do what seems impossible. <laughs> um, I remember talking to to Wendy about the welfare debates and um, both she and Patsy recognized they didn't have the votes, but they needed to establish that there were alternative perspectives, that there was a record of opposition. And I think that is again, so powerful. We tend to think about history predominantly from the winners or the voices who, um, you know, who, who shout the loudest or who won. Um, and so I think it's so important to have this counter history of struggle um, to say that there are other possibilities, that what came about was not inevitable. Um, so all those things I think are, are so
0: important when we remember Patsy Mink. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on?
1: Well, one of the projects that Patsy Mink advocated was the 1977 National Women's Conference. And this was the first and only time that the federal government gave money to develop a national women's agenda. Um, It was inspired by the 1975 United Nations International Women's Year Conference that was held in Mexico City. So Patsy, Bella Abzug and others argued that we needed to have a convening in the United States. And there were several things that I find really fascinating about that meeting. Um, First, there was this legislative mandate for diversity. So there had to be a diversity of representation in terms of race, class, occupation, political perspectives. Um, Also, there were pre-conferences that were held in every state and also six territories. And so it was not just a one-time event, it wasn't just a federally imposed process, but it was funding given to, women across the country and men if they were interested to really engage in deep conversations about what were the issues that mattered to them and what were the issues that um, people can come together around and say, this is the the national agenda of um, a collective. Um, I'm working with a, I'm both writing a book about the Asian American and disability women who participated but I'm also working with the University of Houston and they are creating a website in which they're trying to document the 2000 delegates who came from the 50 states and the six territories, uh, we're working with research teams around the country. Um, so it's been wonderful um, to think about one of the impacts that, that passing Make made. Um, and then for this research process to replicate the grassroots organizing process of 1977 that we're using the grassroots um, research process to document that history.
0: Well, we are looking forward to much more. And thank you so much for being on the podcast.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you for the opportunity.